Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present John Rainwater, Executive Director of Peace Action, who assesses the danger inherent in Vladimir Putin's recent announcement that Russia is suspending its participation in the new START nuclear arms treaty. Mel Buer, an associate editor with the Real News Network, who examines the response to the toxic chemical freight train derailment in Ohio and the urgent need for tough federal regulation of the rail industry. And Bill McKibben, co-founder of the climate activist group 350.org, who talks about Third Act, a new group he's founded that's organizing people over 60 to defend democracy and address the climate crisis. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. On a remote ranch in coastal Colombia, campesinos work the land once owned by a former drug dealer who is now in a U.S. prison. Before he left, he granted progressive president Gustavo Petro the power to hand over his 3,000-acre ranch to poor farmers who now graze several dozen cattle there. For his supporters, Petro's victory represents a historic opportunity to achieve social justice in a country that has endured over 50 years of civil war, conflict over land, and narco-trafficking. Petro has pledged to negotiate radical reforms of health care, pensions, and labor laws, advocate for peace with all of Colombia's armed groups, and transition away from fossil fuels toward green energy. Officials in Petro's administration are a mix of progressive activists and centrist politicians. The Economist reports Colombia's finance minister, José Antonio Ocampo, negotiated with Colombia's conservative politicians to enact tax reform which will raise new revenue, allowing Petro to fund new social programs. Arizona U.S. Senator Kirsten Sinema, who recently left the Democratic Party to become an independent, is a close ally of the exploitive payday lending industry. The industry she supports often charges 400% interest on short-term loans. Payday lending is seen as predatory and is banned in 18 states. Cinema, who is up for re-election in 2024, will face off against progressive Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego, who leads in early election polls. While in Arizona state legislature, Cinema started a consulting firm with then-state representative Chad Campbell, who later became a payday lender lobbyist. As a U.S. Senator, Cinema joined Republicans in signing a letter to the U.S. Consumer Financial Protection Bureau condemning the agency's work reining in payday lenders. It's not surprising that she's received the most money of any active senator from the industry, $168,000, and comes in third among lifetime payday lender industry recipients. Since 2010, congressional Republicans have systematically defunded the operations and enforcement capacity of the U.S. Internal Revenue Service. 
Over time, the IRS lost 15,000 tax enforcement officers, depleting the ranks of auditors required to review the complex tax returns of the nation's wealthy. Even before the COVID-19 pandemic, the agency's customer service suffered. In May 2020, the agency had a backlog of approximately 20 million returns, delaying tax refunds for millions of households. But as reported by the American Prospect, major changes are ahead for the IRS. Last August, Congress allocated nearly $80 billion over the next decade to supplement existing appropriations. Aside from operational and enforcement capabilities, a significant part of those funds will go toward hiring some 87,000 new employees. In a recent article, Charles Rosati, the former IRS commissioner from 1997 to 2002, called the $80 billion a once-in-a-century opportunity to restore a depleted IRS. The money, he said, should improve customer service and make filing annual returns easier for most Americans while increasing public revenue simply by collecting what's due from the nation's wealthy. But he warned that without a permanent IRS commissioner who can steer the agency in the right direction, this once-in-a-generation moment could fail. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Just days before the world marked the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Vladimir Putin announced that Russia is suspending its participation in the New START nuclear arms treaty with the U.S., the last remaining agreement that regulates the world's two largest nuclear arsenals. Russia's foreign ministry later stated that the decision to suspend participation in the treaty was reversible. New START places limits on the number of intercontinental-range nuclear weapons that both the U.S. and Russia can deploy. As the current treaty expires in 2026, both countries will soon need to begin negotiations on a new successor nuclear arms control agreement. In 2002, President George W. Bush unilaterally withdrew from the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. The Trump regime then abandoned the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 2018 and the Open Skies Treaty in 2020. The withdrawal from or expiration of most nuclear agreements between the U.S. and Russia has become more dangerous in the midst of Russia's war in Ukraine, where the U.S. and NATO countries are actively supplying weapons and intelligence to Ukraine's military. Your reporter spoke with John Rainwater, Executive Director of Peace Action, who assesses the danger inherent in Vladimir Putin's recent decision to suspend Russia's participation in the new START nuclear arms treaty. This is uh, the last major treaty going by the wayside, and so it's ominous in the sense that we're losing the weak arms control regime that that we've had uh, dealing with the threat of nuclear weapons. I think there's there's multiple sets of, of problems here. One is the more technical, and that goes to um, less consultation between the U.S. 
and Russia on these nuclear weapons, less transparency in terms of data exchanges uh, between uh, the countries and less inspections. And just at the beginning, that lack of transparency is a huge problem in terms of just ratcheting up the likelihood of a God forbid error when it comes to uh, the two countries, because they don't know what what exactly is going on. The, The second set of problems, specifically with New START, the New START doesn't just have transparency measures, it has ceilings on warheads and weapons and bombs. Um, and delivery systems, and the countries, either one or both of the countries could blow past those ceilings. Now, that's less likely. That's harder for the countries to do. It's less of an immediate threat, but it certainly could happen over time. But what we wanted is implementation of New START and actually greater negotiations between Russia and the United States, the two biggest nuclear countries, and this just makes that harder and less likely. So it's it's very ominous. I think that's the right word. John, a lot of commentators analyzing what Putin said about suspending participation in the New START Treaty noted that he used the phrase suspension of Russia's participation rather than withdrawal. How significant is that, do you think? I think it's very significant because the, the first step should be to resuscitate the treaty or as much of, as possible of it. So overall, I think what the grassroots can do is press the United States to engage in nuclear diplomacy with Russia. And what we need to do is to get New START back on track, ideally, as much or all of it as possible or all of it. Uh, But we need to go beyond that and have the U.S. and Russia engaging in a longer-term arms control dance or diplomacy. Um, New START was set to expire in 2026 anyway, um, so there needed to be diplomacy now to do follow-on agreements. But certainly, we in the United States should be pressing the U.S. not to do anything in reaction to Putin's withdrawal, and certainly the Republicans and and other allies who want to ramp up nuclear weapons production in the United States would like to do that. And then we have to press the Biden administration to engage in robust diplomacy with Russia. We should not just take this on face value. And the suspension does allow us to go back to the table immediately, or as soon as we can at least, and try to get things uh, rolling again. There was a recent poll that talked about 58% of Americans are fearful of a nuclear war beginning over this conflict in Ukraine. What can citizens do to pressure our legislators and the current Biden administration to take seriously the threat of nuclear war and address it on pursuing some of the policy prescriptions that your group is advocating? I know a longstanding objective is to have the United States adopt a no-first-use policy regarding nuclear yes. weapons. But maybe just quickly summarize, if you would, what would be the top two, three, or four items that you would suggest activists and people just frightened of the specter of a, a nuclear war, what should they be pursuing in terms of pressuring their legislators? Well, one thing, this bill by Jim McGovern, it's part of the back from the brink effort that lay out several things that the United States can do. One is to support 
the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. One is no first use. Um, uh, something uh, else that's critical is we are spending uh, as much or more uh, as what we did during the Cold War on nuclear weapons. So that's starving um, money from social needs that, that are um, incredibly urgent, as well as uh, helping to create a nuclear uh, arms race. So, so that's incredibly uh, important to oppose. Um, so those, those are some of the, the top issues. I would encourage you know, people to get involved in efforts like Diffuse Nuclear, get involved in peace action, um, sign up for our email alerts. I mean, it's, it's uh, people associate that with slacktivism, but uh, signing up for email alerts is a great way to track where you can plug in and pressure your members of Congress uh, on these issues. So uh, uh, that would be something pragmatic that people could do to, to keep in the loop on what these various efforts are. That was John Rainwater, Executive Director of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund. Learn more about the group's work on nuclear disarmament by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. One month after the February 3rd derailment of a Norfolk Southern freight train carrying toxic chemicals in the small Ohio town of East Palestine, Many residents continue to experience disturbing health effects, while expressing distrust of government officials' often contradictory messages regarding ongoing environmental hazards. Workers cited the February derailment as a glaring example of why they fought for new safety regulations and paid sick leave for workers when rail industry unions threatened to strike in early December. That strike was averted when President Biden and Congress intervened, to impose a contract deal that failed to address workers' key demands. The six major railroad companies that made $22 billion in profits and spent more than $20 billion on stock buybacks and shareholder dividends last year have largely opposed new federal safety regulations. Your reporter spoke with Mel Buer, an associate editor and labor reporter with the Real News Network, who discusses how lax federal regulation of the rail industry played a role in the toxic chemical derailment in Ohio and hundreds of similar accidents across the U.S. I've been covering the railroads from a labor perspective for just about a year. And the one thing that keeps coming up as I've been talking to workers over the past year, first covering the contract fight that nearly ended in a nationwide strike last year, and now this derailment, is that the ways in which the rail industry operates in order to maximize their profits accelerates the conditions that lead to these kind of derailments. Uh, when you have trains that are far longer and heavier than they were in previous decades, when you cut staffing across the board, not just on the trains themselves, but the folks who service the track, who service the trains, who dispatch uh, the trains in various areas, what you have is essentially this recipe for disaster. And the conversation that we've heard over the last two weeks about, oh, well, this is a common occurrence. More questions should be asked about why is this so common? Um, why is it that the rail industry is sort of enabled to uh, engage in such um, pernicious lobbying that they have been successful in deregulating this industry to the point that it's causing 
a real public safety concern, and it's causing a real safety concern for its workforce. Mel, there's been a lot of discussion about the rail industry's influence on government regulations. There have been fingers pointed at Donald Trump and his administration for rolling back some safety break requirements that the Obama administration had put in place. But there have been other outlets like The Lever who point out it's not just the Republican Trump administration that has been a good friend to the rail industry in terms of not pursuing safety regulations for these railroads, but it's been a host of presidential administrations from both parties. Maybe you could speak to that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really what it comes down to, right? Um, you really, you're going to be pointing fingers in one direction or another in terms of deregulating this industry. Um, the first one you point out is the rail carriers themselves. They spend millions of dollars a year lobbying Congress to roll back regulations that increase public safety and increase the safety standards of the railroads themselves. Last year, the rail industry pumped $25 million in lobbying money into uh, Washington in order to uh, continue to be a presence there, right? The Biden administration, uh, the Trump administration, the Obama administration, all of them received this lobbying money. And as a result, you see, for example, in the Obama administration, the regulations that were put in place that we kind of talked about being rolled back by the Trump administration were less strong, right? They, they weren't as strong as they were originally proposed. And that is the result of uh, a very successful, from the perspective of the rail industry, a very successful PR and lobbying campaign to reduce the, you know, the impact of these regulations. The one thing that I, I would like to say with this is, you know, there is this partisan mudslinging that's been going over the last couple of weeks where one side is lambasting the other, right? And it, this sort of thing kind of obscures what is the real issue here, which is to say federal lawmakers um, and various regulatory bodies um, have sort of let this unfettered corporate greed continue without consequence. And the rail industry has taken that and run with it. And they make billions of dollars in profits per year, all while driving their workforce into the ground and you know, creating these situations where you have these very long, very heavy trains, some of them carrying hazardous materials, going off the rails in working-class communities all over this country. And I think really underscores the sort of like playing political theater with people's lives is something that very many working people don't have patience for um, and find to be missing the point. There have been reports that the water testing being done now to detect what chemicals have leached into the water supply in East Palestine has been conducted by a contractor working for the, the railroad who's responsible for this accident. It's obvious that people in this community are very concerned about the veracity of what they're being told in terms of the health impacts. Can you comment on that for us? That same um, testing facility also, according to reporting from the Huffington Post, mishandled the samples. And so, you know, most scientists who are watching this are saying, go back and retest the water, right? Um, you should be conducting these independent tests anyways. You know, my own personal opinion is if you want to get these folks to believe in the transparency of the work that you are doing, then be more transparent, right? Um, and go back and test this again and, you know, be very clear about who's handling what um, and, and keep this above board and keep Norfolk Southern's own contractors out of the equation until you can regain public trust. Understandably, the public in the village of East Palestine 
are still feeling the effects of this, and they are terrified. And what they need is uh, more chances to regain that sort of public trust. That was Mel Buer, an associate editor with The Real News Network. Find a link to her recent Nation magazine article titled The Ohio Derailment Catastrophe is a Case Study in Disaster Capitalism by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. organization called Third Act is organizing people over 60 to become active in the fight to safeguard democracy and address the climate crisis. In 2022, thousands of volunteer members worked to turn out voters in the November midterm election, helping to blunt the expected Republican red wave, along with a better-than-expected turnout of young people. Now the group's focus has turned to the nation's big banks, that are funding fossil fuel projects to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Bill McKibben, writer, activist, and co-founder of the global climate organization 350.org, who in 2021 founded Third Act. Here, McKibben discusses the origins of the group and their upcoming National Day of Action to Stop Dirty Banks on March 21st. On that date, protests are being organized in Washington, D.C. and cities across the U.S., targeting J.P. Morgan Chase, Citibank, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. Third Act's about a year old, and it's going great guns. We're tens of thousands of volunteers around the country now. And it really came out of the understanding that there was a kind of gap here. A, a, a lot of people over the age of 60 who were alarmed about the way that our planet and our country were headed, uh, that it wasn't turning out the way we'd imagined when we were younger, uh, that you know the poles were melting and the capital was being invaded. And so we, um, we banded together to try and see what we could do about it. And we've done a lot of work in the last year. There was a ton of it focused around elections and the midterm elections and now we're heavily focused on going after the banks that are bankrolling the fossil fuel industry so it's been very exciting work i gotta say as much fun as i've ever had doing anything (laughs) oh that's good so there are a lot of groups that are focusing on the banks and on getting the banks to divest from fossil fuels so does third act collaborate with them or do you do your own thing this is all collaborative what third act has done is picked a day and uh, said, this is gonna be the day when we're gonna be out uh, doing our best to draw attention to this nexus between cash in the bank and carbon in the air. And once we'd picked the date, we've been encouraging everybody to join in and everybody has been joining in. The Sierra Club and uh, 350 and dozens and dozens of other groups, Interfaith Power and Light and Green Faith and on and on and on have all joined in to help make this into a big day. At the moment, there's already uh, 50-some demonstrations in more than 20 states planned. I'm going to be in Washington, D.C. that day where they're 
planning to blockade the banks with 50 of us in rocking chairs. So uh, I think we're going to finally really help people see that the banks are in their way as dangerous as the oil companies that they support. It's just shaping up to be a, a well, a real return to the streets after the pandemic uh, for the climate movement. Right. And one thing I know that's been talked about is elders are stepping up, but that we want to support and make alliances with young people who have been at the forefront. Do you know if there's anything specific going on to ally with younger people who also have climate change as their main concern? Absolutely. In fact, this bank stuff really started a year ago when the Fridays for the Future crew reached out to us and said, will you support this demonstrations we're doing at banks? And uh, that was really the first action that Third Act engaged in. And it was lots of fun. Uh, among other things, I remember being in Boston for a big demonstration outside the banks and the young people were doing all the leading and all the talking, but there was a big group of us there with hairlines like mine, you know, and we had a big banner that said fossils against fossil fuels. So we are playing our part too. And that part is really to help back up the tremendous work that young people are doing. They're the ones who are going to have to live their whole lives uh, in a planet damaged by climate change. You know, I'll be dead before it hits its absolute worst. So that's a big part of what we do. There's a slogan on a big giant scissors that says, cut it out or we'll cut it up. Is that right? <laughs> exactly right. Turns out that cutting up your credit card from one of these banks is a pretty good way to make a statement because it costs them a lot of money to recruit new customers for their credit cards. And in particular, uh, worry that uh, uh, they won't be able to attract new young customers to their credit card business if they're identified as the bad actors that they are right now in the climate space. So that's really one of the things that we're focusing on. And in fact, I heard today there'll be, a, we should have videos soon of a underwater credit card cutting on the dying coral reefs off the Florida Keys. And in Alaska, our crew are building a big wooden credit card that they're gonna cut up with chainsaws. And so the message should be getting out, I think. But truthfully, we don't even need you to necessarily cut up your credit card or close your account. What we need you to do is join in this political action against these banks calling attention to them. Very few of us uh, have bank accounts large enough or credit card bills large enough that Chase may not even notice if you close your account, but they will notice if you are outside their bank with a big banner, if you're blocking the door with a rocking chair, if you're taking the art kit that we've gotten, building a cardboard smokestack to go next to the bank. All of that is precisely the kind of thing that harms their reputation, calls their you know, endless greenwashing into account and produces the kind of change that we need to see. That was Bill McKibben, writer, climate activist, and founder of the group Third Act. Learn more about Third Act's Banking on Our Future campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WUML in Lowell, Massachusetts, WESU in Middletown, Connecticut, KSER in Everett, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.